If you have your New Testament with you this morning, be turning to the book of Hebrews. Going to be in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews this morning. Glad that you're here on this rainy Sunday morning. It's not always easy to, uh, to be out on a rainy Sunday morning, and it does say something about a level of commitment and interest that you have, and we appreciate that very much. It's encouraging to us. And this morning we're talking about encouragement and uh, about the reality that the early Christians were facing in the first century. The, the epistle to the Hebrews was written to a group of people, a group of Christians in the first century of a Jewish background, a group of Jewish Christians who apparently were quite discouraged. And as a matter of fact, they were so discouraged, some of them had just quit. They just quit. And others of them, with their faith, they were considering quitting. They had grown up in a, in a Hebrew culture. They had grown up uh, in the context of the temple and the Passover. And uh, they had... Uh, grown up with, with a family that was centered around God, that was centered around the law, that was centered around the feast days. It was centered around the promises that were made to Abraham. They had grown up with that. They had grown up with the teaching of the law and the prophets, and the prophets were telling of the coming Messiah. And the prophets were looking toward the day when, when this king was going to come and he would take David's throne and Israel would be restored to prominence again. And this Roman domination and this Roman oppression would finally come to an end. Well, they became Christians. After hearing about the Christ, and it seemed like, it seemed like their lives just fell apart. I mean, one of the first things that happened when they became Christians is they, they had the family issue. They had to go home and tell somebody that, they no longer were going to be going to the temple to offer animal sacrifices because the Son of God had offered the sacrifice for sins. The Messiah had come and they now were following Him. And for many of them, their reality was, you're no longer my son. You're no longer part of this family. You can just get out. And then there were those who were married. And they had to go home to a spouse and say, Hey, I know that Judaism has been part of our life and we've always, we've always taught our children. We've always gone to a temple. We've always done the sacrifice. We've always observed the holy days. But now it's different. And the spouse said, No, no more. I don't want any of this. And then there were the Romans. 
uh, the Romans who were oppressing them and the Romans uh, who, were, uh, who were persecuting Christians and the, and the Romans who had put to death the Christ on the cross, the, the most shameful death known to humanity, the Christ Jesus of Nazareth had died the shameful death. And, and Christians were associated with this shame. And then they lost their jobs. And people on the street would not speak to them. And nobody invited them over for a cookout on Saturday afternoon. And it just seemed like since they had become Christians, their lives fell apart. And, and the, the end result of all of that was, <clears throat> they were discouraged. They were discouraged, and they were asking themselves, did I make a mistake here? I mean, did I jump too soon? Did I act too quickly? Was, was this the impulsive response of a Peter who just always is quick to act, does his thinking later. I mean, if God was really with us, if, if this is really what we were supposed to be doing, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, and if this is the fulfillment of the promise, <laughs> wow, what, what a mess. I, it seems like something's wrong here. It seems like God is not here. It seems like God has abandoned us. It, it seems like God is punishing us for what we're doing. And so there was the development of what the writer of Hebrews is going to call the evil heart of unbelief. Because the longer they lived and the darker it got and the more painful their circumstances, the more discouraged they became. Well, we're living in a, in a culture that is <clears throat> increasingly secular. A culture that no longer embraces and encourages and reinforces Judeo-Christian values as perhaps it once did. We are... We are seeing one challenge after another for those who are trying to be Christians. We are seeing one disappointment after another. We are seeing one obstacle after another. We are experiencing one heartache after another. And we live our life year after year after year doing what we believe is right, trying to serve God. We are, we are purporting the message that, that Christ has, has revealed to us, and it just seems like, well, as the early Hebrews would have said, it just seems like our lives are falling apart. And for some, they would say, you know, the longer I live this life, <laughs> the more I wonder it, is this it or not? Now, I want to ask you something. What, what do you think? 
What do you think is Satan's greatest challenge to us today? You think it's secular humanism? I, w- I would put that really high on the list. Satan's greatest challenge to us today, do you think it's the internet? I would put that really high on the list. You think it's social media on the internet? I would put that at the top. No, not at the top. But even further. Do you think it is the postmodern culture or we are evolving now into the post-truth culture? At least in postmodernism, there was the idea. We, we, we said about modernism, everybody believed there was an objective truth, they just didn't believe you could get to it. Then we said in postmodernism, well, people believe perhaps there's a truth, but they just believe everybody has their own truth. Now we're moving into the post-truth era. And frankly, ladies and gentlemen, there are just lots and lots of folks who believe there, there's just not any truth. You don't have to worry about me having my truth and you having your truth. Now, people are just, there's just not any truth. So everybody just live like, what do you think is our greatest, if Satan is going to get us today, what is the greatest challenge and temptation that we're going to face? And I'm going to suggest to you this morning, it is exactly the same one of the first century that the writer of Hebrews was addressing. It is discouragement that leads to unbelief. Just absolute battle fatigue. Worn out. Hurting. Suffering. Cannot squeeze out one more emotion. And what Satan really wants is for us to look around at the darkness, at the dirt, at the despair, and he wants us to just quit. He wants us to quit. So, all through the book of Hebrews, the author is saying to these people, don't, don't go there. Don't be like that. Don't drift away. Do not let Satan plant in your heart the seed, uh, uh, the evil heart of unbelief. Do not fail to enter into the rest because of unbelief. Do not turn away from that which is in front of you. You've got to stay the course. You've got to fight the fight. You've got to keep your eyes focused. You've got to understand the mission. You've got to see where you are going. So when chapter 12 opens, as Blake was reading to us this morning in our scripture reading, as chapter 12 opens, Therefore, seeing that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, who is he talking about? This great cloud of witnesses, Naphos. What is this great cloud of witnesses? He's talking about the folks of Hebrews chapter 11. He's talking about about Abel and Enoch and Noah. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Isaac. 
He's talking about Jacob. He's talking about Joseph. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. He's talking about these. And why is he talking about these? Because he said in chapter 10, remember who we are, folks. Yes, it is true. You have suffered. You have been persecuted. You have experience the loss of your possession. But he said in chapter 10 and verse 39, do you see the text? In chapter 10 and verse 39, he said, we are not of them that shrink back into perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. No matter what, we are not of them that shrink back. We do not give up. We do not sit down. We do not quit. And just a reminder to you, you want to know who we are? We are Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Barak and Samson. and Je We are with them because we are God's people. That's who we are. That's who we are. And he said in verse 39 of God's people, I'm in... Chapter 11 now, in verse 39. We were in chapter 10 and verse 39. Verse 39 is the number of the day. Uh, chapter 11 and verse 39. And all of these, all of these heroes of faith, who he is calling up as witnesses, we did not shrink back. We did not quit. We did not grow discouraged and just sit down and stop. Instead... These all, having had witness born to them through their faith, did not receive the promise God had providing some better thing concerning us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what he's saying is, all of God's children persevere by faith, and God has one end game for all of his family. It's not like he had one reward for those of the Old Testament and another reward for those of the New Testament. Those of all the men and women of faith of old, they're not going to receive theirs something different, something apart from what we are receiving under Christ, what we're promised under Christ. This is all one bill. It's all one package. It's all one plan. It's all one God. These are those who've already lived their lives, and they maintain their faith, and they kept their eyes forward. And now he says in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, let us also, seeing that we are compassed about, compassed about, it means surrounded. We are surrounded. You remember the, the Greek Olympic stadiums, the Roman theaters and the Greek theaters and the Greek Olympic stadiums that were built for the Olympic Games would have spectators on every side. And the writer of Hebrews is calling that imagery of the Olympic Games and he's reminding them of the race that is being run. And he said, we are compassed about with this great cloud of witnesses. The cloud of, the word cloud there is used of a large mass of people. Just a cloud of people. And he's talking about the people of faith. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, people, we are surrounded like, like athletes in a stadium. Look in the grandstands around. We are surrounded by 
Moses, by Abel, by Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We, we are surrounded by them. Look at them. The great cloud of witnesses. What a wonderful thing. We, we, are, we are about to run our race, he said. In view of that, as he's using this imagery of the games, he uses it often. Uh, in, in the New Testament, the imagery of the games, of the Olympic games, used over and over again. Running the race. The Apostle Paul uses the imagery of the games, of the contest in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. And in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, Paul talks about running the course or finishing his course. It was the word that was used of the race course that would have been run. He's talking about uh, this imagery of the games, the writer of Hebrews is using that same imagery. And he said, it, it's like in this reality we call life, we are surrounded by those who've gone before us. They are watching us. They are cheering us on. They are the witnesses who are testifying to the fact we've been there. We understand. We've done that. You can do this. You can do it. It's like they are the mentors. They are the coaches they, they, are, they are spurring them on. Because of that, he said. Because we're surrounded by them. How, how could you possibly think about quitting? Instead, he said, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin that does so easily beset us. The, 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 uh, the language there is talking about the, the weight being anything extraneous that would slow or hinder the progress. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, whatever, whatever is impeding your quest for the goal, get rid of it. Whatever it is, get rid of it. But especially the sin that entangles you, the entanglement is, is like, the, it's like the toga, the robe or the cloak that would be worn that would come down to the ground. You start running. That's going to tangle up around your legs. You're going to fall flat on your face. That's why when you were going to move quickly, you had to lift the toga somewhat and tie it, gird up the loins. Why? So you can move. And the writer here is saying, you get rid of anything that is going to hold you back or anything that is going to trip you up. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That word patience there is endurance. Let us run with endurance, perseverance, a stick to that does not yield. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that set, uh, is set before him endured the cross, despising shame, he sat down on the right hand of God. Who is this Jesus? Look at Jesus. If you're discouraged, if you're thinking about quitting, if, if, if the fatigue of the situation is about to get the best, if you are weary of this, get your eyes focused on Jesus. You know what happens when you're in a strenuous exercise and you start focusing on how bad your muscle hurts? 
It just hurts worse. And you start thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this. My muscle is going to freeze up. You know what happens? It freezes up. It just locks. Or you start focusing on your breathing. I can't get my breath. I can't get my breath. I can't get my breath. You know what's going to happen? You can't get your breath. The writer of Hebrews here is saying, get your mind off of your circuit. Stop looking around, looking at how bad life is, looking at how big this problem is, looking at how tall Goliath may be. Stop looking at that. Get your eyes focused on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Endured the cross. The Roman cross. The same Jesus who said to them, look, if any man is going to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. Wow. We've all got a cross to bear. Ladies and gentlemen, a cross, a cross was a Roman Instrument of torture and death. Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Get your eyes fixed on Je- Stop looking at your problem. Somebody hurt your feelings. Somebody didn't invite you to the party. Somebody left you out of the family gathering. Somebody took something that belonged to you. Look at Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. One of the things the Romans had perfected in the first century was not only their ability to torture individuals, but their ability to humiliate them in the torture. The cross was the perfect instrument of torture and shame. As the nude body would be placed on the cross, lifted up for all the world to see in the agony and the grotesque realities of the death process. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising shame. Despising shame, despise doesn't mean that he just loathed it. That's the way we use the word. It means, despise in the biblical sense means that he lowly esteemed it. He counted it as nothing. We would say, no big deal. Jesus, for the glory, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the same, and he sat down on the right hand of God, of the throne of God. Consider him that has endured such gainsaying of sinners against himself, that ye wax not weary, fainting in your hearts. You have not yet resisted unto blood. You think you're hurting? You think your life is tough? You think we're up against evil? Look at Jesus. And you have completely forgotten the exhortation that reasons with you as with sons. And then he's going to quote from Proverbs chapter 3. We talked about it in our Tuesday morning community Bible study. 
Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 11. My son, do not regard lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he... You've completely forgotten that. You're you're thinking, oh, God has abandoned me. Where is God? I I don't know what I've done. I've made a huge mistake here. My life has fallen apart. I'm not doing this anymore. I am tired. I am worn out. I am hurting. I'm quitting. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, what are you saying? What are you saying? Get your eyes focused on Jesus very quickly. He's telling them that in your moment of discouragement and pain and weariness and fatigue, remember something. We are called right now to run, not rest. The rest comes later. Right now, We are in the run. And as we are running, those who've gone before us are in the stands. They are compassing us. They are, as it were, cheering us on and reminding us how men and women of faith persevere. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let me say to you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, In the midst of discouragement, we need to make sure our eyes are clearly focused on Jesus. On Jesus. And he calls on us to persevere. We're called to endurance, not avoidance. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. I'll I'll tell you what is one of our biggest obstacles. We think... We think that what God really wants to help us do is avoid all the pains and the trials and the difficulties of life that God really, really wants us not to have any problem at all. And I hate to burst the illusion, but that's not what God wants. What He wants is that we would endure the challenges and the difficulties, not avoid them. Look at Jesus. The the prayer of Jesus was, Lord, if it be possible, let me avoid the cross. Isn't that what he prayed? That wasn't God's plan, to avoid the cross. The plan was to endure the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that was set before him. Thirdly. We must remember that in God's order of things, it is first the cross, then the crown. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 110, which is actually the psalm on which the entire sermon of Hebrews is built. First the cross, then the crown. I'll I'll tell you what gets us sometimes. We, We cultivate this illusion in our minds that it's all crown and no cross in the kingdom. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we missed it. We missed it. Jesus didn't say, if any man wants to be my disciple, he must first get his crown And then he can come and follow me, and he may have to pick up a cross somewhere along the way. That is not what Jesus said. 
First comes the cross. The pain, the suffering, the enduring, the persevering, the serving of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. At the end comes the crown. And then the writer of Hebrews is calling upon us to remember, don't forget. You have completely forgotten the exhortation that deals with you. You were were crying. You were discouraged. You were saying, God doesn't love me anymore. God has abandoned me. I don't know what's gone wrong here. You have completely forgotten the word of God. Get your head back in the book. And the thing that you need more than anything else to give you faith and strength is the word of God. What did the Apostle Paul say? So then faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. And then he said, and let me remind you of something. What we're talking about here is training, not punishment. Sometimes in life, we think when we're going through the dark days, through the fiery trials, through the adversities of life, we think this is the worst possible thing. God is saying to us, are you kidding me? You sound like a little child who's just been spanked who turns around and says to his mommy or daddy, you don't love me. No, the writer of Hebrews says the truth of the matter is the training and the discipline is proof of the love of the Father. Get your head rearranged to think about this the right way. And then he said... You need to understand where we're going here. Lift up the hands that hang down. Have you ever seen a runner who was just on the last leg? I am not a runner. I, I, have, a, I have a thought about people who like to run, but I, I'll keep it to myself. But I, I'm not a runner. I've tried to run before. And after, after about the first one-tenth of one mile, My arms come down, my back bends over, my tongue comes out. I cannot hardly lift myself. It's pitiful. And and nobody, nobody has to come up and ask me, oh, are you a runner? Nobody ever asked me that. (laughs) They know I'm not a runner. You can tell when somebody's about done. You can tell. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look. Get that chin up. Straighten up your back. Eyes forward. Quit thinking about how bad your legs are. Quit thinking about how far it is. Quit thinking about how difficult this is. Quit thinking about the hill that is in front of you. Get your eyes on Jesus. And when you get your eyes on Jesus, keep them there. Because what you have that's already given to you is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. You've got this. He's in heaven. He's on the throne. Look at Jesus. Keep your eye on that. You're done, folks. You're done. All you've got to do is go through the gate. It's done. He went there. He offered the blood. We're redeemed. We're just going home. What what do you mean you're going to quit? Are you kidding me? 
You can't quit. You push on. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him. And whatever you do, however dark the day, however painful the moment, however heartbreaking the trial, you don't give up. You don't ever, ever, ever give up. Because looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we see the goal that has been assured us. And we are surrounded by those who have gone before us. And we have the promise of God that he's got us in his hand and in his heart. And this morning, we're going to eat the bread and we're going to drink the cup. And we are going to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord until he comes. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, we invite you to come in obedience to the gospel. And if you're a child of God who needs to come home, we pray you'll come right now while we stand and sing.